And I, I like what John said, that God gives us another year to know him more and know him better and to proclaim his his gospel, which I hope we we all take advantage of this year. And so in order to start the year, I, as John mentioned, I, I really thought one of the things I know in, in my own personal life that is like if the least spiritually practice of mine, I'm not that great at is prayer and I know when you talk to believers, everyone's like resolution. If they have, I was like, well, I could pray. I mean, who couldn't pray more, right? Maybe you're like, no, I pray enough, but that's not me. And I thought of our church, you know, really getting involved in prayer a lot more than what we normally do. And so I thought this would be a great way to kick off the new year is to dedicate a month of, to prayer. And in various ways, as, as we'll talk about, we're going to every week talk about a different aspect of prayer or highlight a, a passage in Scripture about prayer. So hopefully you make it out every week, and I'll talk about the prayer list probably during the sermon at some point. But with that said, we, we wanted to dedicate all the sermons to prayer, like I said. So we're going to look back at where prayer began in the church, and it kind of piggybacks after like I mentioned last week, I would allude to this, is the book of Acts, picking up in verse 12. And if you were here last week, you remember Jesus had told the disciples that their business was not to worry about the time that he was going to establish his kingdom, but to go out and preach the kingdom of God to Jerusalem and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the world. But before they were to do that, they were to wait for the promise of God, which is the power of of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at that this morning in the message entitled The Pentecostal Life. Now, for those of you that are ultra conservative, don't freak out. You know, the Pentecostal denomination sometimes gets a bad rap. And <laughs> easy, Rafe, is easy. <laughs> but we could use a little more Pentecostal experiences in our life. Thank you. Yeah, amen. That's, you know. I have a friend who's from a really ultra-conservative, fundamental Baptist church. And, I mean, I'm, they like raising hands. They'd be like, dude, you guys need to just calm down with the raising hand. You know, like, I go, don't you guys raise your hands? You go, we'll shout like at the word of God, which is kind of cool. They shout. But during this, I guess during the worship, it's just pretty much, you know, like that. Which is, hey, doesn't really matter. As long as you worship, you worship. But, so what is it, the Pentecostal life? We're going to look at Scripture and find out, and you'll see what I mean. I'm not saying we're all going to jump around and speak in tongues and do some of the things that you maybe see on TV. We're going to keep it biblical, so to speak. And then in the process, learn about what actually is Pentecost. It's really cool. But before we start, let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for another year, another day, more importantly, to live and breathe and glorify you in our lives. And I know, Father God, if we asked every believer in the church, could they glorify you more? We would all say, yes, we could. And so that is our prayer, Lord, through the power of your spirit and the power of your word, that you would teach us how to do that. For we have the spirit of God that resides in us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives within us. So show us, Lord God, how to yield to that spirit and move powerfully in the lives of us individually and collectively as a church, for you've given us another year to do that, and we pray that we would be obedient to do it, Lord God. We ask for your help this morning, 
that you would open our eyes and our ears and we would hear what the Holy Spirit of God has to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to flip around. or We're going to look at a big story of the early church in chapters 1 and 2. So we're going to start in verse 12. As I mentioned, in order to go forward, I thought we really need to look back at the early church and look at some of the fundamental principles that were involved in the growth of the church. And we're going to see how they grew individually and as and corporately as a movement, a church, the Christian church. If you've read the book of Acts, you will know it was said of them that they were out turning the world upside down. They made a big difference, and all because they yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit and were led by the Spirit. But what was it that they did or did they have, and what's missing in the church today? What's missing in my life and your life today so that we might experience some of the power of the Holy Spirit? In my opinion, it is the lack of reliance on God of today's church is why we don't see these great things happening. I think prayer is a telltale sign of how much a person relies on God. You know, do you pray about everything and all things? This morning I had a little traumatic experience as I was getting ready to finish up my sermon. I was doing my hair. Doing my hair, I was like, guys, like we don't do our hair, but I put gel in it, you know, and messed it all up. And then when I stood up, I went, oh, my back just stiffened up. And I began to pray to God <laughs> and got an ice cold pack and leaned it on the wall. And for like a half hour, I was on the wall where everybody was asleep. And I was like, I, I can't, this can't happen, Lord. This is, a, I got to teach today, you know. What are you going to do without me, God? <laughs> I'm like, well, I guess it's just worship service or John's message is just going to have to come up. And thankfully, after some, I drove myself to Starbucks because that's my Sunday morning routine and got some coffee in me and and I'm feeling a lot better now. But I could still feel a little like the back is like ready to go at any time. And good thing I'm not real Pentecostal up here. I'm like, I just stand still and teach, so I, I should be okay. But who knows? It's, oh man, I need to stretch even before I do my hair, I guess. But prayer, you know, again, going back to reliance on God, sometimes it's things like that when we start relying on God, right? A little more, something bad happens in our life and we begin to pray a little bit more. And I thought about, why, you know, why don't, you know, prayer isn't like the big thing in ministry. You know, people don't record prayers and play them over and over again, you know. And that's why I said prayer is really a, shows our reliance on God because it's not seen. We do it on our own, by ourselves, behind closed doors. You know, and I think the content of our prayers that we're all alone really reveals our hearts. What are we praying for? What are we asking for? What are we thanking God for? And that's a big part of prayer that's often neglected is thanking God, isn't it? I would admit to that. And Jesus told a parable about that as well. So my hope this morning is that you will be encouraged and challenged to rely on God more through prayer. And that you will be encouraged and challenged to pray for each other. And that's a little reason why we've given you a list of Renaissance Christian Church prayer lists. And, and I hope I didn't miss any families or people off them. And if I did, I, I really apologize. But I think I included people that attend here or maybe have been here, you know, when they come to church, this is where they go. 
And really, it's like a who's who of Renaissance. And now you know everybody's name. Now you have to figure out who they are if you don't know them. Even though in a small church, don't you sometimes go, what is that person saying? Well, now you have it right there. So we'll go through that throughout this morning's sermon. I found this great quote on prayer by a gentleman named James Montgomery, and particularly about Pentecost. And he said this, and it's in your bulletin, the young and the old inspire with wisdom from above and give us hearts and tongues of fire to pray and praise and love. And this morning, sir, but we're going to read about that episode, the tongues of fire, talk a little bit about that. So let's get to it. Let's look at the early church as an example of prayer. So starting in Acts chapter one, we're going to read verses 12 through 14, and I'll be a little different. Normally, I go through and read the entire text and come back and talk about it, but there's a lot to cover. So I'm just going to talk about it as we go. So remember, Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem, await upon the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is where we pick up in verse 12. It says they return. Then they returned from being with Christ who ascended to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. These are the 11 apostles that are left. And these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Those of you of the Catholic tradition, you're like, what? Jesus have brothers? Yes, he had brothers. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. It's okay. This is why you got to read the Bible, church. Thank you for that Pentecostal amen. (laughs) So I want you to notice something throughout the story this morning or the account. It's how often it is said, like verse 14, they were all with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. The early church was united and committed to prayer. Just like it says right here. They were of one mind, unity, and they were continually devoting themselves to prayer, the passion that they had. And they were persistent and they were unanimous in their task in doing this. And they were obedient because, again, Jesus had commanded them to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they did. They went to Jerusalem and they just prayed. We're not told what they prayed for, but they prayed. And the next, and then I want to skip down to verse our chapter two now and pick up the story here. The section that we just missed is pretty much Peter says that we need to add somebody to the disciples because Judas is gone, and so they add a gentleman named Matthias. But now in verse two, and this is going to be ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven, says this: When the day of Pentecost had came. They were all together in one place. Now let's stop right here for a second and discuss what is Pentecost. Well, Pentecost is a New Testament name for the Feast of Weeks from the Old Testament. Well, what is the Feast of Weeks? Well, the Feast of Weeks was celebrated 50 days after Passover. So there were three big festivals in Jewish nation, or big holidays, and this is one of them. They had Passover and the Feast of of weeks and it was a celebration according to the old testament to commemorate the first fruits of the harvest 
So they would present their first fruits to God after the harvest during the Feast of Weeks. In post-exilic Judaism, which means basically after the return from Babylon, they also commemorated the giving of the Law of Moses during the Feast of Weeks. So you had the first fruits, the giving of God's first harvest that they blessed them with, that they would present to God, and they would commemorate and celebrate the giving of the law to Moses at this time. Now, as I said, this is one of the three big holidays in Judaism, and it was required that all male Jews were to be in Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday or festival. And so as you could imagine, at this time, the city was full of people. You know, maybe men had brought their families along with them or made the trip by themselves. But either way, the city of Jerusalem was jam-packed like it would have been at Passover. And now it's 50 days later, and it's the Feast of Weeks. And let's go back to the text now in verse 2. So this is what's going on. when they, So they all come together, all the disciples and, of Jesus. And it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributed themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were and they all excuse me and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was given them utterance. So what's going on here? So the disciples and the women and probably every believer of Jesus at the time, because now they all have to be in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, there appeared tongues of fire hovering over them. And they were all filled with the spirit of God, it says, and they began to speak in other tongues. Well, what were those other tongues? Were they were they some type of tongue that you couldn't understand or were they understandable? Well, look at verse five. It tells us. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation of heaven. Why? Because of the Feast of Weeks. They were there. And when this sound occurred, what sound? The sound of these tongues. The crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galilean? So what you have here is, the disciples, the women, also disciples of Jesus, began speaking in foreign languages of the, all the people that were there. Now you would think, well, if they're Jewish people, wouldn't they all be speaking in Hebrew? Well, no, there were Jews that were living in all parts of the Roman Empire, and they spoke different languages. And it tells us the languages of those people. Look at verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So what was going on here is the Holy Spirit had empowered these men who were Galileans to speak foreign languages. And those languages, what were they doing? They were proclaiming the gospel in foreign languages. So it would be as if all of us 
Maybe we're in downtown L.A. or something where there's, or let's say Disneyland, where there's a lot of foreigners. And we all just started proclaiming the gospel in all the languages of all the people that were there. That was tongues. That was it. I don't think it was an, an utterance that you didn't understand. Well, it wasn't at least in this context here. Maybe it is in some other context, but we're talking about this. The tongues of fire were tongues to proclaim the gospel in a foreign language. That's what was going on here. Nothing more. Again, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. So that's what tongues was. The Holy Spirit, and it came on every believer. And the Holy Spirit again gave them the ability to proclaim the gospel. And as you could imagine, said everyone that heard this was kind of bewildered. Like, what the heck is going on here? It's nine in the morning. A matter of fact, verse 13, look at verse 12. It says, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. They're saying these guys are drunk. These people are drunk. We can't even understand what they're saying. So they were bewildered. They were amazed and astonished. And the crowd asked, and this is important, what's going on? What does this all mean? What is this? Tongues of flaming fire. They, they didn't see those, but they just heard this language. Their language the gospel being proclaimed in there. What does this mean going on at this great holiday, Pentecost? So, thankfully, Peter interprets this for us. It's starting in verse 14. Let's go there. He's going to interpret what all this means. Why these people were, being, were hearing the gospel proclaimed in, in their own language. Peter's taking his stand with the eleven raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, meaning it's nine o'clock in the morning. So what does it mean? He says, but this is what was spoken, spoken of through the prophet Joel. We don't have time to go back to Joel, but we covered that, I think, last year we taught through Joel. And he's going to interpret Joel's prophecy from the Old Testament in relation to what does it mean in the New Testament now. Look at what he says. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So, before we move on, he's interpreting Joel's prophecy as being fulfilled right then and there. The Spirit of God, in the form of tongues of fire, has come down on each believer, and they are Proclaiming the gospel, prophesying to a certain extent. When? At that time, first century. That is when the last days were inaugurated. I've said that over and over again, and here's scriptural proof. He's saying in the last days. When were the last days? When did they start? Right then, first century. After Jesus ended the last days, and we continue to live in the last days now, it's inaugurated, and this is what is going on. And then he continues in interpreting this. So, The last days have been inaugurated. 
the gospel is being proclaimed to all the world as he continues on. Look at verse 20 or 19. And I will grant wonders in the sky and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what is he saying? Did blood and fire and vapor and smoke and all this, you know, the sun turn to darkness, the moon turn into blood? Did that happen right then? No. Will it happen in the future? Probably it will. This language is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to proclaim when something great is happening. And we don't have time to go through to that. And he's saying this is going to happen before Christ comes. It's all part of the last days. So, again, I'd love to just sit here and talk about this for a long time, but we can't. During the last days, that's going to happen. God's going to intervene in such a way that these cataclysmic things will happen as well. I believe that sometime in the future. But it's also used of talking when just consummation, you know, when God comes into going to do something great, it's like the whole world has been rearranged. And again, we could go through the Old Testament and point out where it says God has done that. So with that said, so the last days have been inaugurated. The gospel is going to be proclaimed, and this is what is happening according to the Apostle Peter at that time. So let's continue on. Now go down to, we're going to go down to chapter, uh, verse 37 now in chapter 2. But from this point on, right after saying that, the Apostle Peter proclaims the gospel, tells them about Jesus, and this is what happens in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. All those people that heard the tongues. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And just a side note, as I mentioned last week, the Holy Spirit fills who? Each and every believer. When? When they receive Christ. So it's not a, hey, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It happens when you're saved. And again, as I mentioned last week, the more and more that you submit to it, the more and more the Holy Spirit will lead you. So for the promise, again, verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. The apostle Paul is saying, hey, you guys, this is happening as Joel proclaimed so that you would be saved. You need to respond to this. And they asked, "Okay, what do we do? So then those who had received the word in verse 41 were baptized And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people respond to the call of the gospel of salvation. And then what do they do immediately after that? Again, this is Luke highlights this over and over again about the early church. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves, as I mentioned in chapter 1. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is the month of prayer. This is why I highlighted this. So they did all these things. 
They listened to the apostles' teaching. They partook of fellowship and communion and prayer. It was a vital, uh, a vital thing of the early church, and it should be for us today. And what happens because of this? Let's continue. As Luke emphasizes this unity of the early church, he says this, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. So everyone was just amazed at all the things that were going on. Here, prophecy is being fulfilled. Right? The Holy Spirit of God is being poured out in the last days to proclaim the gospel. People are being saved. They see it. And there's a sense of awe in the church. And many wonders, it says in verse 43, and signs were taking place through the apostles. And if you read the book of Acts, you will see that over and over again. All these signs that happen as the apostles are proclaiming the gospel. And so everyone's amazed. In verse 44, and all those who had believed, and again, the, Luke is going to express the unity of the church here in verse, 44, in verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Again, the emphasis is the unity of the church. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And then look at this in verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to, the num- to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the results of, this, of the signs and proclamation of the gospel, again, were this. Everyone was believing, having this sense of awe. And many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all of them that saw those things were together and united and were believing and they were sharing with one another. Selling property, selling possessions, whoever had need, they were providing for them. This was unprecedented. In the first century, Rome did not do that for people. It was survival of the fittest. And so I think the reason why they had favor, it says in verse 47, with all the people is because they were blown away that these people would do this for for others. I've mentioned this over and over again. There's a great book called The Rise of Christianity where they talk about this, that this didn't exist in first century Rome. People weren't buried and cared for to a certain extent. They didn't care for the young. They didn't care for widows. They didn't care for women. But the Christian church did, and so they were. it was drawing many people to the Christian church because they cared. They did something different. So this is what was going on. The gospel was being proclaimed. God was moving mightily at Pentecost, and everybody was just united together and i really like that something i want to point out about pentecost too just a side note is that this like what is pentecost how it's interpreted in the new testament i I really like this as i study so the passover was one of the big holidays what happened at passover in the new testament that's the day christ died the passover lamb right 50 days later the first fruits were offered and I think here that we get a picture of the first fruits are the new believers receiving the Holy Spirit of God and proclaiming the gospel. The Spirit coming down 
in a way, accepting the first fruits of the Christian church. I really like that. I'm like, God, oh, that's amazing. How God uses the Old Testament festivals and holidays to foreshadow what's coming in the future. The Passover lamb, the feast of first fruits, or the, or the feast of weeks, sorry, which are the first fruits. Do you guys see that? that? And then the other thing I saw is here he's using language to unite the church to proclaim the gospel. And they waited for the language to come down. What happened at the Tower of Babel? God used language to do what? To confuse, to spread out. And here he's drawing it to unite. I thought that was interesting as well. And if you remember the Tower of Babel, they wanted to build it to do what? To reach up to God, to get to God. When God says, no, you wait, I'll come down to you here in the New Testament. When you wait for God, God does great things. I just thought the parallels and the pictures of the Old Testament and New Testament were amazing. So, how does all that pertain to me and you? You know, 21st century believers. Are we going to see these tongues of fire over us? Well, I would say no, because that first instance was the feast. This was the offering of the first fruits, and it was the Holy Spirit came down, and now the Holy Spirit is always with every believer now once you get saved. So how do we live this out in relation to our prayer life? Well, what examples can we learn from the early church? Well, number one, like the early church, we should be persistent in our prayers. Over and over again here in these first two chapters, Luke demonstrates the unity of the church and their persistence in prayer. Everywhere they went, there was teaching and prayer, teaching and prayer. They were with one mind, teaching and prayer. And I think that's, again, that's fundamental to the growth of a Christian and to the church. Be persistent in our prayers. I want to show you one story from the Gospel of Luke about persistence. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 5. I like this. In this section, this demonstrates our reliance on God. If you are persistent in your prayers, you're going to God because you rely on Him. Otherwise, you wouldn't go to Him if you were going to rely on yourself, right? Or you're going to go to somebody else. But the first place we should always go to is to God. The first place I went to this morning when my back was hurting was God. And then I looked for medicine and ice pack and, and all that stuff. <clears throat> but I went to God first, not because I'm so great and awesome, you know, but I was like, oh, what do I do? I couldn't even move. I, I almost forced to go to God when it should be instinctive in each and every one of our lives. Here's a very famous story and parable that, that Jesus gives after telling his disciples how to pray. And there's no doubt that many of us cling to something like this and have heard this before in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. So after he tells them you know, how to pray, he says this, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. How many of you would enjoy me coming to your house at midnight saying, hey, I need some food because I have a friend that came over and I don't have anything for him? You'd be like, uh, aren't there stores open 24 hours that you could go get something? Not so in the first century. So this is what's going on. And from inside, he answers. He doesn't even open the door to his friend. I love it. 
right? He had those video cameras outside, like, what do you want? <clears throat> he says, don't bother me. <laughs> the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. <laughs> I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, nice friend, by the way, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So the picture is this. If his friends just keep standing outside the door asking for food, eventually this guy is going to open up and give him what he needs. This is what Jesus' point is, because he's persistent. He keeps asking. Oh, he's not going away. It's like, I better, give them to the, I better give it to him because he's not leaving, and I'm never going to get sleep. And then he says in verse 9, say, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find knock and it will be open for everyone who asks and receives or excuse me for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and him who knocks it will be open now, there's no doubt you're out there saying well i'm knocking i'm seeking i'm banging hard but i'm not receiving right how many would say you know they've been there and done that i, I would say that you know i'm praying i'm praying i'm praying it's not happening you know, so what does Jesus mean? Does Jesus mean if you ask over and over again, you're eventually going to get whatever you're asking for? I think the main point is persistence. It's obviously not true that if you ask and ask and ask and ask and seek and seek and seek and knock and knock and knock, you're going to get it. Because a lot of us can attest to that's not true. Well, what, but I would say in a sense it is you're going to get something. Go back to verse 8. I, may, I think this may hold the secret. I could be wrong. So when his friend gets up, he gives him as much as he what? Needs. Not what he wants. What he needs. A lot of us go to God with what we want, right? I I wanted my back to be healed, and I just wanted to run down the street. And I could have sat there and prayed and prayed and prayed and knocked and knocked and knocked. And I could say, well, God's word says I'm going to get what I want. Well, it doesn't say that. Right? His friend gave him what he needs. God gives us what we need, and sometimes we don't realize it. Remember the Apostle Paul? He prayed, and he only prayed three times, and what did God tell him about his affirm, infirmity? They wanted to go away. My grace is sufficient. Sometimes God tells us my grace is sufficient, but we don't like that answer, do we? No, we don't. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. No, sometimes I don't want that. I feel that's not sufficient because I need something else right now. But who knows better? The Lord knows better what we need. Remember, he told the apostles, go wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Your praying doesn't call the Holy Spirit down. You're going to sit there and wait till I send him down. And I have a predetermined time when I'm sending him down. That's at Pentecost. Ten days after he'd spoken to the disciples earlier in chapter one, he said, I'm going to go and wait. For the Holy Spirit to come down. It's predetermined when he's coming down. All your praying will not change that. It's predetermined. I like that. In the Old Testament, again, it's the feast, it's Passover and then the Feast of Weeks 50 days later. And God held that even in the New Testament. I'm going to send my spirit 50 days after Pentecost. There's nothing you can do to change that. 
I wish I could stand up here and say to you with all belief and faith that if you ask enough, then that you knock enough, and if you believe enough, you're going to get it. But I don't see that in Scripture. And right here, it doesn't say that. And a lot of us, again, could attest to that doesn't happen. I'm sorry. I don't have a quick answer for you, an easy answer. I just know God gives us what we need. God knows best, and sometimes it's just his grace. And sometimes we are going to suffer until Christ returns. That's just the way it is. It's, it's not the greatest, but anybody that preaches and proclaims differently is not preaching the gospel from the Bible. I'm sorry. But nevertheless, we're called to be persistent in our prayers. Be persistent, and God will give you, I know this much, he will give you what you need, and it will be in his timing. Secondly, how can we live this out? Is be united in our prayers. Over and over again in this story, we see the church united, devoted to each other, continually praying. And so that's one of the things with with this list that we handed you this morning. If you notice, on each day, you know, as me and Mindy were talking about this, it's like, hey, let's be united in what we're praying for. Now, we can't, you know, we have a lot of challenges, unlike the first century church. We can't, you know, all join together in the temple every day. We have things going on in our lives. And some of you might say, well, we could, you know, but let's be realistic. You know, some of us work at night, some work late, some get stuck in traffic, just a bunch of different things going on. But we don't have to be in the same location to be united. So I, I hope that you will look at this list, and on certain days we put topics and things that we should be praying for as a church, for ourselves, for each other, for this world, for the government. And so if we're united in prayers, I think we could do that on those days. It doesn't have to be just for this month. It can be, you know, till Christ returns. But at least, at the minimum, for this month. And in addition... We put the names of all the family members or the family and, and your, you know, not all the family members, obviously, but those who are part of this church or come to this church to some extent. We want to pray for them. So that's why we put their names on there, too. So you could look name by name and pray for that person specifically. You know, and I put on there if you look, hey, just pick. There's only about 30 some families on here. You could pray for one family a day or two families a day specifically, and be united about it. Let's do that. Let's be committed to doing that for each other and for the gospel. So like the early church, let's be united in our prayers. And thirdly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's share the gospel. Part of the reason that Christ allows us to live another day and has given us the Holy Spirit so that we have proclaimed the gospel to those around us. And we talked about this last week. There's different ways. It doesn't mean you have to give, you know, a detailed account of what Christ did and how he died for you. And you need to repent. You may have that opportunity, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's just loving people, praying for them, being an example to them, being a witness for them. Again, I mentioned the early church found favor with all men because they were doing something radical compared to what the rest of the world was doing. And if you think about the lives that Christians are called to live, it's totally radical than the rest of this world. They don't value the things that we value. They don't spend their mornings at church on Sunday. 
you know, or, you know, heaven forbid you go to a Bible study during the week and do that. What would you do that for? You know, just whatever it is or, or blessing somebody with your finances or with whatever the Christian church is called to do that. And obviously the, you don't have to be a believer to do that. But it was started by believers, believe it or not. Most of the hospitals and universities were started. The early ones were started by Christians. They've been taken over now and now everybody does it. But the example was the Christian church. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's share the gospel in word and in deed. And finally and lastly, like the early church, meet regular, regularly to encourage and strengthen each other. You know, it says that they, they went to each, they, they got together day by day and they heard the apostles teaching and they prayed. But there was also, okay, now let's get up and move and do it. Let's encourage one another. Hopefully when you guys come to in church or when you gather together in the different Bible studies, you're encouraged by your brother and sister in Christ. You're strengthened. Again, that's one of the purposes of the church is so that we can strengthen and encourage each other so we can go out and do the work of the ministry and not just meet once a week. Again, there's, John mentioned it, the Bible studies are starting again, but you don't have to be part of a Bible study. We want you to, do, to be, but you can also meet with each other on other days, pray with each other, call each other on the phone, interact on social media to encourage one another. The church should be doing that. Meet regularly to encourage one another. And let's see what God will do in the lives of his people, you and me, and in the church. Wouldn't it be awesome to see just powerful things happening, as John mentioned earlier in his prayer, how God did great things in, each, in people's lives last year. Well, what about this year? Does it have to stop? No. Let's pray boldly for things. Let's see what God will do when people truly rely on him to see him move. I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to what God will do in my own life and in the lives of each and every one of you in this church. I mean, who knows what God can do? He started with just a, a few people here in the first century and look at it now. What could he do with us? Well, I'm ready to find out and I hope you are. Let's pray. Lord God, we... Uh, we, again, just thank you for all that you've done for us in the past. Thank you first and foremost for dying on the cross for us, for giving us new life in Christ Jesus, and preparing a place for us that you promised one day you will come and take us to. But until that time, like you told the early church, we are to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to overlook our temporary setbacks, our temporary illness, and all the things that, that slow us down, Lord God, that are just part of daily life for the believer and non-believer. But you've called us to so much more than that, to dis- despite that, to go out and live for you, to proclaim your gospel to the nations. And may we start with our own families with our own neighbors, our own co-workers, and let it spread from there. Lord God, may we be committed to praying and relying on you more every day. May we be united in our prayers as a church body, praying for one another, praying for the leaders of our country in this world, praying for the persecuted church around the world. 
Lord God, there is so much to pray for, and, and it can be overwhelming. But we know we serve a big God. A God who created the heavens and the earth can do anything else that's asked or imagined. So we pray for your spirit to, to move mightily amongst us as we yield to him. We ask for your help, Lord God. We ask that you would save those of our friends and family who do not know you. Lord, that you would soften their hearts and open their eyes and ears so that they might hear you and see you. And those of us in here, Lord God, who continue to resist your spirit in certain ways, may we relent and allow your spirit to move mightily among us for the glorification of your name and for the edification of our church. Move mightily, Lord, in the families of this church. Will you bless them and keep them and watch over them? Until the day that you return, Lord God, we wait. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.